Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Professor Calder Walton. Professor Walton is professor at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University and is without a doubt one of the leading scholars in the world today dealing with intelligence and national security. He received his doctorate at Trinity College, Cambridge, and today we're discussing his newest book, Spies, the Epic Intelligence War Between East and West, published by Simon Schuster. Welcome, Professor Walton. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Professor, what is the thesis of your book, if it has one? The thesis of the book, which took me, gosh, seven years to write, uh, I think can be summarized in three points. Uh, The first one is, that the Cold War started earlier than many of us tend to imagine. Uh, In the book, I show and argue that the Cold War really started after 1917, when the Bolsheviks seized power, and then when the Western allies decided to intervene in the Russian Civil War. The second point of the book is that the Cold War did not end nicely and neatly, as many of us in the West thought at the time in 1991. Instead, it spilled over and in many ways, for the Kremlin today under Putin is still ongoing. And the third and final point of the book is that the West is unambiguously in a new Cold War at the moment uh, with Russia and China. And once again, uh, intelligence services Western services and those of Russia and China are at the front line of this new geopolitical clash. Why was British intelligence services, quote, largely asleep, unquote, after 1918? That's a very good question. And the more that one looks at the records, the, 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 the more striking it is of just how rudimentary uh, and uh, with a lack of resources Britain's intelligence services had Um, as the Second World War approached in 1939. Why were they asleep? Well, they were 
starved of resources. They had too many demands put on them. And in terms of the as the 1930s progressed, their overwhelming focus was on uh, Soviet espionage and the threat of the Soviet Union with the rising threat of fascism in Europe taking a secondary seat. Um, and it's for that reason that I say that they were largely asleep. It's absolutely extraordinary, Charles, that on the outbreak of war, uh, the head of uh, the, the, the department in MI5, uh, which is the British equivalent of the FBI, had about three or four, not more than four officers dealing with counterespionage. And that was to deal with uh, both in Britain itself domestically and throughout the British Empire and Commonwealth. Absolutely extraordinary. Could the United States be even said to have an intelligence service or services after or before that matter, 1918? Well, very good question. Um, I would argue not. It did not have a dedicated um, peacetime intelligence service as it would do after the Second World War when the CIA was established in 1947. I would, though, point uh, your listeners uh, towards the recent research of Mark Stout, who's an, an excellent intelligence historian. And his book, recent book, has highlighted um, the early history of U.S. intelligence in the First World War, saying, correcting the impression that it didn't all start with um, uh, the CIA in 1947, but there were important um, predecessors in the 20th century for uh, U.S. intelligence. But the the hard fact of the matter is that as the Second World War approached, the U.S. government did not have a dedicated uh, single intelligence services. It was um, it had a myriad of different departments and agencies all conducting intelligence, which produced the mess of intelligence that uh, beset the U.S. government um, before Pearl Harbor. Why was British intelligence in the Orient largely missing in action in the run-up to December 7th, 1941? I wish I had a good answer to that, Charles. Um, it, it, again, it was uh, resources. Again, it was to do with um, what intelligence services call tasking of, of receiving instructions. Um, and the, 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 the reports I've seen show that on the, uh, on the eve of the Second World War, MI6 was uh, largely, quote, largely non-existent in Japan. Um, quite why this was, I think, as I said, to do with resources and um, decision makers uh, in London looking squarely at the European theater instead of the Far East. That's, I should add, Charles, I should add that that's no excuse for an intelligence service not to be raising the alarm to say, we should be um, devoting more resources to this theater. So it's a failure across the board, it seems to me. Why did Soviet intelligence so catastrophically fail in the run-up to Germany's attack on the Soviet Union in June 1941? Well, put very simply, I think much of this can be attached to the person of Joseph Stalin himself. Um, Stalin was his own chief intelligence analyst. He thought he knew better than his intelligence uh, chiefs, many of whom, after all, after all he had killed and purged uh, before the, the, and the, on the eve of the, as the war in Europe approached. Um, why was it so catastrophically mishandled? 
Stalin dismissed um, reliable and valuable intelligence coming from his agents in Germany about Nazi Germany's buildup of the war, thinking that he knew better. Uh, it also has to be said that that uh, the German intelligence services conducted skillful disinformation operations, which Stalin believed. Uh, that basically, at root, he did not believe, uh, Stalin did not believe that Hitler would break the non-aggression pact that he had, that they had um, at that point. He thought he had longer to keep building up his, his, um, his military power. Why were the Anglo-American powers so good at signals, intelligence, and code-breaking, unlike the Axis powers, or for that matter, the Soviet Union? Well, um, much of the extraordinary successes of uh, allied code-breakers um, stem from, first of all, the groundbreaking work done of Polish code-breakers before the war, and then the sheer brain power that was amassed by the British and the Americans, first at, at Bletchley Park, and then also in the U.S. side. Why did this happen? Well, it seems to me that much of it can be explained by the willingness of signals intelligence out, outfits like Bletchley Park being willing to um, allow for eccentrics in their midst. So brilliant amateurs who were not stifled by military um, discipline and, and um, conformity. And that, of course, lay in sharp contrast to the intelligence services of the dictatorships in Europe, uh, Nazi Germany, fascist powers, and the Soviet Union, where conformity was absolutely required on the pain of death. Why do you not agree with Sir Francis Hinsley on the degree of importance attributed to ultra to the Allied war effort? Well, it's a, it's a debate that will um, rumble on uh, and on and on. I, I follow much of the work of Paul Kennedy in this regard about the actual impact of um, decrypts, British decrypts, Allied decrypts on um, the um, uh, transatlantic uh, shipping routes um, that, that in fact, some of those who worked at Bletchley Park probably overstated the significance. But more generally, I'm afraid it's just a counterfactual that is impossible to prove. And so, although it's a nice turn of phrase, perhaps, that um, code breakings, the decryption of Ultra, shortened the war by up to two years. That's what um, Harry Hensley said, claimed. Um, Actually proving that at a granular level, the impact it had is much more difficult and perhaps even impossible. So I follow um, also the uh, remarkable official history of GCHQ written by John Ferris, uh, which comes to similar, similar conclusions that signals intelligence was helped to tip the balance at certain moments of the Second World War in favor of the Allies especially from 1943 onwards, but it wasn't a decisive blow as perhaps some romanticized depictions of Bletchley Park show. Why did Stalin show greater importance to spying on the Allies than he did Nazi Germany? Good bloody question, <laughs> Charles. Um, essentially, this stems from the first point I made, the first argument of the book, which is Stalin viewed the Western powers 
um, principally Britain to start off with, and then increasingly the United States as his long-term ideological enemies. This starts, this all stemmed from his reading of Marx, uh, the Marxist-Leninism, um, and his belief that the capitalist powers were inevitably conspiring to overthrow uh, a Soviet communist regime, um, and that there would inevitably, uh, according to his reading of Marx, be conflict between um, communism and capitalist Western imperialist powers. So it seemed only natural, if that is your paradigm, as it was Stalin's, um, to, be, to do as much as possible whenever the opportunity presented itself to uh, collect intelligence on his long-term adversaries, London and Washington, but also steal as many secrets from them as possible, military and industrial secrets, in order to build up military power base to prepare for what he saw as the inevitable conflict with them. What explained the Soviet successes in human intelligence and in particular the recruitment of the so-called Cambridge Five? Much of this, Charles, can be explained by um, their ideological belief, their blind ideological belief in communism. So the Cambridge Five in particular were all communist true believers, Marxist true believers who believed that Stalin's regime uh, presented the, the best defense against rising fascism and also uh, the, the best uh, alternative to uh, Western capitalism, which in the early 1930s, when they converted to Marxism, Western capitalism <clears throat> seemed to be entirely bankrupt and broken following the Wall Street crash. So there, theirs was a, a blind faith in communism, which drove them uh, to work secretly for the Soviet regime um, and allowed them to do things. It seems to me that uh, mere, mere agents motivated by money may not have been willing to do. So extraordinary dedication to an ideological faith. Who was Igor Guzenko? And why was he an important individual in your book? Igor Kazenko was a Soviet military intelligence, GRU, cipher clerk who defected in Ottawa in 1945. And he brought with him a tranche of documents which revealed uh, to his debriefers in Canada, the British and then Americans, uh, the nature and scope and scale of Soviet, pre previous Soviet wartime espionage, including Soviet espionage at the heart of the Manhattan atomic bomb project. He, Gazenko, uh, is quite rightly called the man who started the Cold War because he was the first person just a month after uh, the U.S. dropped the atomic bombs on Japan, ending the war. Gazenko, a month later, was the person who sounded the alarm about what the Soviets had been doing to their erstwhile allies during the Second World War. So he's an incredibly important figure in the Cold War, but one who has not, it seems to me, been given the recognition he deserves. From the perspective of intelligence, would it not be the case that the Soviet Union was to blame for starting the Cold War? Well, I think that this, I think the Cold War really started, um, as I said, um, uh, in 1917, when the Bolsheviks seized power, 
and then when the Western powers intervened in the Russian Civil War. It seems to me from that point on, the two sides of this conflict were on a collision course. Now, that collision course only occurred after the Second World War, and it seems to me that it was during the Second World War when all of Western defenses, the Allies, Western Allies' defenses were down and, and concentrating elsewhere. Um, that is when Stalin seized the moment. So to answer your question, would it, was it fair that it was um, um, due to the Soviet intelligence and Soviet regime? Yes and no. Uh, the Soviet regime viewed um, the Western powers as out to get them from the very earliest time, not least with Churchill himself. And they had good reason for doing that. Uh, Churchill really did lead a crusade to try to over, uh, overthrow the Bolsheviks um, after they seized power in 1917. So it's not coming from nowhere, but it seems to me that the nature of the conflict was really um, put in place from the much earlier period in the 1920s. Why do you characterize Henry Wallace as a, quote, Soviet tool, unquote? Well, this, um, Charles, comes from some documents that I uncovered writing the book from Soviet or Russian archives in which Henry Wallace, who was running in 1948 as an independent um, uh, in, the, um, uh, in the 1948 election, uh, secretly liaised with Stalin about um, platforms that would be useful for him, Stalin, um, going forward. So this is a, a series of secret correspondence between uh, Henry Wallace, former FDR's former vice president, running for election in 1948, who was through the Soviet ambassador in Washington, liaising with the Soviet dictator, Stalin, about what would be useful for him for an American president to say and do. This was really quite striking, and I'm afraid the word that comes to mind looking at this correspondent is collusion. Here is a presidential candidate who was trying to do what he could to help um, relations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in any way possible, uh, looking away from all of Stalin's barbaric crimes and all that he stood for. Um, that's the reason that I call Wallace a Soviet tool. He was an asset, but there's no evidence that he was a recruited agent of the Soviet intelligence service, but he certainly at that moment in that episode in 1948 worked to the advantage of the Kremlin. Why were Burgess and McLean, two members of the Cambridge, so-called Cambridge Five, able to escape to the Soviet Union in 1951? Well, absolutely catastrophic failure on the part of British security is to explain for explaining that, but also um, skillful um, ability on the part of Soviet foreign intelligence in concocting their escape. So the records that are released now show how agonizingly close the British Security Service, MI5, came to catching uh, Burgess and McLean on the eve of their defection. Um, at the same time, uh, Soviet intelligence, uh, thanks to its other members of the, of the Cambridge network, knew all of the trade, tradecraft tricks of Britain's 
MI5 and knew how they went about surveillance and when they went about surveillance, including, and this really beggars belief in, in retrospect, including that MI5 uh, watches its surveillance team did not work uh, at the weekends. And this allowed Soviet intelligence to concoct uh, an, an escape uh, for Burgess and McLean over a weekend in 1951. Why were not uh, Kim Philby and Anthony Blunt, two other members of the Cambridge Five, not charged in the aftermath of the escape of Burgess and McLean? Well, they were, why were they not charged? Um, this, this, this is not, uh, it's commonly assumed that this was due to a government uh, an establishment cover-up. In fact, it was to do, we can now see from records, with not having available sufficient evidence to actually prosecute them in a court of law. So the evidence that was there was it was uh, essentially hearsay. Um, it was speculative. Most importantly, Philby never confessed um, at that point anyway. He had not confessed. And without a confession, um, MI5 knew that they would not have evidence to prosecute him. Um, so that's the reason why, at that point, um, he uh, was not charged. He then defected in 1963. Um, why was Anthony Blunt um, not prosecuted? Same reason. At that point, he did not confess. So this was not to do with a government uh, cover-up, as it's commonly uh, asserted, more to do with available evidence. Was Oleg Penkovsky the West's greatest intelligence ass asset during all of the Cold War? Well, he certainly occupies, Penkovsky certainly occupies a rightful place in the pantheon of um, great Western intelligence assets, probably amongst others, including Oleg um, Gordievsky um, and at least one other American U.S. CIA asset um, towards the end of the second uh, end of the Cold War. So he's one of the greatest. He his intelligence helped uh, Kennedy to defuse uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, and for that reason, um, certainly uh, deserves his place amongst the greatest. Whether he was the greatest is a matter of debate. How did the KGB discover Penkovsky's um, activities? They discovered, the KGB discovered Penkovsky's activities through um, careful um, surveillance um, on their part. They also had um, uh, information uh, coming from uh, sources that there may have been a leak. The actual pieces of the puzzle are still difficult to, um, to put in place. And under Putin, uh, the narrative um, is that it was all due to skillful um, work on the part of the KGB. I'm afraid that some of it is also to do with sloppy tradecraft on the part of Britain's Foreign Intelligence Service, MI6, using assets uh, to meet Penkovsky, who were already known within the Soviet bloc. This was a cardinal error on the part of any intelligence service, and it allowed um, the first clues to the existence of a mole, uh, Penkovsky, uh, to be 
um, discovered by the KGB. Why do you say that the United States was not responsible for the overthrow of Salvador Allende of Chile? I think that I don't quite say, Charles, that the USA was not responsible for the overthrow of Allende. What I hope I say in the book is that the CIA was not the agency that, quote unquote, pulled the trigger. But the, but the United States government was certainly responsible for the entire atmosphere against Allende and indeed mounting a vigorous um, covert action program to undermine and discredit his regime. But the actual coup that overthrew uh, Allende was not, as we now know, um, orchestrated by the CIA. But the entire context in which that happened was certainly driven by covert action instigated by Nixon and Kissinger um, to overthrow Allende. How important was Oleg Gordievsky to Anglo-American intelligence on the Soviet Union in the latter stages of the Cold War? Well, I mean, it's right up there, as I said, with um, Oleg, the, the earlier Oleg, Oleg Penkovsky. And Oleg Gordievsky gave insight in the late 1970s and early 1980s into something that was otherwise entirely missing within uh, Western powers, within in London and in Washington. That is to say, uh, what the Soviet regime the Soviet leaders were actually thinking about them, so the Western powers. So he was able to give insights into the way the Kremlin thought about the West. Um, that's the power, uh, it seems to me, of human intelligence espionage, giving those kind of insights which technical intelligence, even in the best ways possible, cannot give. So he was able to um, provide documents and insights into the, the thinking of the Kremlin, um, both in the early 1980s and then when Gorbachev came to power. So it was absolutely extraordinary insights. Um, and certainly Robert Gates, then in the CIA, uh, said that this was unique intelligence. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com 
and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Why do you believe that Mikhail Gorbachev was ultra-important to the collapse of the Soviet Union? Well, Gorbachev, um, all said and done, was still a true believer in the Soviet regime. He, he was trying to rescue the Soviet regime for itself, from itself. Um, his Now, I don't go as far as what you see uh, today of, uh, in the Kremlin uh, narrative, and you don't have to look very far online to find this narrative on Russian websites that uh, the Soviet Union's collapse was all due to Gorbachev, that he was the traitor. And if it had been somebody else, the Soviet Union wouldn't uh, have collapsed. I don't go, I don't think that's correct at all. Um, but he was the, the captain of the ship uh, when the ship hit the rocks and broke to pieces. And some of his reforms um, that he instigated to try to save the Soviet uh, Union from itself, we can now see with retrospect um, set in train a process that helped to break apart the Soviet empire. But ultimately, um, he was um, the leader of a system that was already, it seems to me, falling to pieces. So um, he was he was important. He wasn't solely uh, responsible for the collapse of the Soviet Union, as Russian narrative today uh, in some quarters likes to suggest. Did or did not Western intelligence predict the collapse of the Soviet Union? I think, Charles, it depends when and where you're talking about. Um, the Western services, CIA, for example, certainly predicted uh, at a strategic level the fundamental rot within the Soviet um, economy and the Soviet regime that could lead and would lead ultimately to its breakup. But it's certainly not the case that they um, predicted uh, when the series of events would lead to the unwinding. Now, it's arguably, uh, you know, arguably on one level, that's a failure. On another level, um, nobody really knew uh, the chain of events that would lead to the unwinding and then the collapse of the Soviet bloc, not even the Soviet leaders themselves. So um, it's fair to say that they, the Western services, we don't have documents for the British from this time period. They're not released yet. But the documents that are available now about the U.S. intelligence community uh, show it in, in better light than we used to think about predicting the demise of the Soviet Union. But it certainly did not predict the series of events that actually led to that. Why did the collapse of the Soviet Union see more continuity rather than discontinuity in Russian intelligence? Well, really good question. Um, the tragedy of this period, it seems to me, looking at these records and interviewing people, was that although the KGB um, ostensibly was dismantled with the collapse of the Soviet Union, in fact, it wasn't. Um, it was simply resurrected very quickly into different services with different names, but very little else changed. Um, so why did it um, see more continuity? Well, the Russian government under Yeltsin was skillful in saying that Russia needed to have a powerful 
intelligence establishment in not least to safeguard Russia's nuclear arsenal, and that's quite right and quite legitimate. But what Yeltsin um, failed to do was to stamp out the um, horrendous legacy of the KGB in its new services. And indeed, many of the same officers, the same ethos, the same training, tradecraft, records, even some of the same agents deep inside Western services continued seamlessly after the breakup of the Soviet Union into the new Russian government in the 1990s. Um, so why did it see more continuity than discontinuity? Uh, Russia needed a strong intelligence establishment, it said to the outside world, and that's exactly what it got. But it also got one that was horrendously corrupt. And as the 1990s went on, uh, saw a merger, a merger between Russian intelligence services and Russian organized crime. How important to Russian intelligence in the post-Soviet era was Aldridge Ames to, to it? Well, uh, we have not got publicly the damage assessment that we know was done on the part of the CIA into the espionage of Aldrich James. But I've interviewed people who worked on that damage assessment uh, and indeed knew Aldrich James, um, who uh, state very clearly that his espionage was catastrophic for the U.S. intelligence community both during the last years of the Soviet Union and then as he continued on um, after the Soviet Union's collapse. So his intelligence gave Russia's services insight into um, U.S. intelligence capabilities and intentions, and his espionage led to the capture and, in some cases, execution of, of CIA assets behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, it's impossible to put it at a granular level exactly uh, what information um, he provided from within the CIA that led to KGB and then Russian intelligence taking counteractions. Those are secrets, Charles, that are kept under lock and seal in the Kremlin and don't um, are, are unlikely to see light of day um, until and if and when there is a new regime in the Kremlin. But um, we've got it on the best possible authority that his espionage was devastating for U.S. intelligence. Why do you say that under Vladimir Putin, Russia has become a, quote, mafia state, unquote? Well, that's both, um, Charles, uh, due to the nature of his regime um, and the way that he runs his Kremlin. But more importantly, it's uh, to do, I, I, I describe it in this way, because of what I mentioned just a moment ago, um, the fusion uh, merger between Russian intelligence services and Russian organized crime in the 1990s. And it's exactly out of that uh, toxic criminal blend that Putin emerges, um, both as the first as the director of Russia's security service, the FSB, and then when he becomes uh, Yeltsin's successor um, in the Kremlin. Um, he incorporates 
Russian organized crime into his intelligence services in ways that are without comprehension to those of us in the West. That means that the Russia's security service, FSB, is entirely unlike, uh, say, the FBI uh, or MI5. Um, it facilitates massive Russian state-backed money laundering schemes for the personal enrichment of Putin and his oligarchs. So um, Putin facilitates Russian oligarchs and organized crime. And for that reason, I think it's fair to call his regime a mafia state. Why, as you put it, does Putin, quote, hate the USA, unquote? Well, Charles, I think this goes back to the humiliation of the Soviet collapse. Putin has famously or infamously now said that the Soviet collapse was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. Um, he sees he is a former KGB officer and cut from that cloth. He sees and has always seen the United States as, quote, the main enemy, as the KGB used to call uh, the United States. Um, he sees the, the U.S. Um, as responsible for Soviet collapse. And then he sees in the 1990s, the U.S.-led international order as essentially a form of tyranny on the international stage, uh, a way in which the U.S. government uh, imposes its will on others, i.e. Russia and uh, China. Uh, he also says, along with Xi, it must be said, um, so he sees, um, why does he hate the U.S.? It stems from that period. And in his outlook, um, it's only got worse, uh, worse this century with, for example, U.S. Uh, regime change um, after 9-11. And he sees the U.S. as coming for him, just as the U.S. came for people like Saddam Hussein. Who is a greater intelligence threat to the West at the present time, the Russian Federation or the People's Republic of China? Well, it's a really good question, probably impossible to for, for anyone on the outside like I am without access to classified information to actually produce a metric of um, uh, which is a greater threat. They pose a threat, and we should say first and foremost that, of course, Putin and Xi are expressly in an, in an alliance with, quote unquote, no limits. So they are collaborating together. And there is some evidence that their intelligence services are indeed collaborating together. Um, the Russian uh, government and its intelligence services essentially operate in a zero sum game in a negative way, which is that if they attack Western powers, principally the United States, and undermine the U.S. capability to function as a democracy um, and to influence world events, then Russia would, by default, be winning. This is, lies in contrast to uh, the CCP um, and its intelligence services, which are uh, seeking to provide a positive alternative uh, to the U.S.-led international order. So this means at a granular level um, that Russian services um, and China services are both involved in massive 
um, stealing of Western intellectual property, commercial military secrets, uh, industrial secrets. But uh, the CCP is trying to produce a alternative, positive alternative to the United States. So in terms of the actual um, global competition that some people like to call it uh, with the West, it's unambiguously uh, the CCP that poses a bigger challenge or threat to the United States than Russia. Russia's economy is small and uh, the sanctions, though they are not working as well as Western powers assumed or predicted, um, have certainly um, helped to undermine the Russian economy. And all of that, of course, lies in sharp, sharp contrast to China's economy, which, even though it is fluttering at the moment, is still massive. What uh, I'm sorry. What do you What are your three conclusions that uh, you have for your book? The Charles, the conclusions of my book are first and foremost uh, eternal vigilance that Western governments have a duty to look beyond the immediate uh, and look for longer term trends and uh, challenge trends, challenges and threats. And that Western governments have actually been extraordinarily bad at this uh, during the 20th century and then during the US-led post 9-11 war on terror. So what Western governments tend to do is to throw an enormous amount of resources at an immediate priority, while others, um, longer-term threats, go on the back burner. So Western governments uh, have to find a way to balance that tendency um, and to look uh, for longer-term trends and threats. So uh, at the moment, we are, Western powers are once again being pulled into the Middle East, it seems, with a priority um, once again shifting towards counterterrorism for understandable reasons. But at the same time, this is not to say that the long-term challenges and threats of Russia and China are not going away. To say nothing of non-state challenges, such as the um, the growth of artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and bioengineering. Another long-term um, priority conclusion of my book is to say that although, although history is important, and you and I would both agree with that, I think, um, history is not a recipe book that can simply serve up meals that can be then uh, given out uh, at will. And in what I'm really talking about here is the seismic change of intelligence and national security that's underway at the moment. During the 20th century, spying and espionage was about clandestine collection from human sources and from technical uh, intelligence collection. Today, the overwhelming power of open source and commercially available intelligence is a game changer for intelligence and national security. So governments need to be very careful about um, looking back with nostalgia. That's why I, uh, I don't like the term great power politics 
it it implies a sense of nostalgia of we've been here before, we know about this, we can do it again. And in fact, the tools for um, the, for battling the geopolitical collision between East and West this century all need to be forward looking. That's to say, um, artificial intelligence, open source, quantum computing, those kind of tools. So that's the other overwhelming conclusion of my book, Charles. On that note, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Walton, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Walton, very much. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation.